We are in the book of Philippians again, nearly finished. This will be our second to last message in the book of Philippians before we move on to another book of the Bible. So that's, that's kind of exciting in its own way, but sad in some ways because this has been just a tremendous study as we have worked through this book, finding how we can have divine joy for our earthly journey and the perspective that this text provides for us as we walk this road. Today we get to talk about money. Isn't that exciting? Everybody gets so excited when we start talking about money in church. You know, we don't talk about money very often here. We don't pass an offering plate. It's not something that we dwell on frequently. I don't, in fact, this is actually the first sermon that I've ever preached on the issue of money. But from time to time, as we work through passages of Scripture, as the scriptural text addresses the issue of our stewardship of finances, we get to talk about that, and we get to move right through those texts and see what God's Word has to say for us. When it comes to personal finance, money is a topic that can often make people squirm in their seats when it is discussed in church. When it comes to personal finance, there are many passages of Scripture that address how we should be approaching, again, I use this term of stewardship. We are stewards of resources that God has given to us, and many texts speak to that reality of how we should steward our finances. Money is addressed so frequently in Scripture because money can so often have a hold of our hearts. And so money, and so the Scripture and Scripture itself bears witness to the reality that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so many texts of Scripture seek to confront us and to challenge us to be directing our affections back unto the Lord and stewarding resources well. There is a reality that many so-called pastors do abuse texts that speak to money, and so we have negative stereotypes that exist when it comes to churches talking about money, right? There's, there's many churches that have a stereotype, and people are, you know, there's that stereotype of, oh, this church is always talking about money. They're always fixated on this thing, and that is a reality, and it's understandable that that stereotype exists, and it's a sad reality, Because when a so-called pastor fleeces the sheep in the name of healing or the name of seed sowing or whatever other tactic that might be used, it is not only ethically concerning, but it is wicked and demonic. And those who enrich themselves off of the ministry will be judged for their actions. But then there is the issue of church finances and how churches as a collective whole will spend their money. Such a topic has been the source of many a debate and many a fight within churches. It has damaged relationships, has led to power struggles, manipulative tactics, and it seems that everyone has an opinion about how a church budget should be built and how funds should be directed. There are many ways that churches and individuals can go off the rails when it comes to the subject of finances. So in many ways, we ought to be glad that Scripture does speak as frequently as it does to the issue of money because it helps correct us on all those different ways that money can go off the rails. It helps bring us back to what a biblical ethic ought to be, and that includes our text for today. 
As we are winding down this letter to the Philippians, we find Paul addressing the church on a very personal matter of their personal support of him and his missionary activity. Well, Paul expresses his appreciation for them and their support, and as he does so, he gives us insight into how we can approach finances in a biblical way, in a Christ-honoring way, in a God-honoring way. And so we're going to examine that as we move through our text today. A few prerequisites that we need to embrace when, before we begin to talk about church finances. Our passage today discusses how churches, as a collective whole, directs their funds as a church. But the question arises, how the church got those funds in the first place? And there are other passages of Scripture that speak to that issue. And I'm going to summarize what I believe Scripture would lead us in that regard. And this is, this is going to be a quick overview and a quick summary. Uh, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on this. But here's just a few prerequisites, a few principles that I believe Scripture lays for us in a variety of texts. The first is that it is good to give to the local church. It is good to give to the local church and to the work of the ministry. 1 Corinthians 16.2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside, is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Notice it says, as he may prosper, indicating that, okay, this isn't like a strict 10%, as many churches make it out to be, but it's as you have the ability, as you have, it's in accordance with what you have. But this is a good principle that it is good to give to the work of the ministry. Second, giving should be a delight for God's people. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7 says, Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. The members of the local church ought to be delighted to help fund the ministry of the church if there are concerns for how a church is using their finances that might make someone withhold their funds, that, that really ought to be addressed with the leadership of the church to have those conversations. And it, it doesn't have to be an awkward conversation. It really only becomes as awkward as we make it out to be. Because the reality is, is that if we believe in the mission of what a church is doing, we believe that the gospel ought to be proclaimed. If we believe in discipleship and we believe in these things, then we ought to be, as individuals, delighted to help be partners, as the Scripture lays forth, this idea of co-laborers for the gospel, co-laborers for the ministry. And finally, the last prerequisite before we move into our text is that giving is an act of worship. And we're going we're gonna to see this text a little bit later on as we move through things. But Paul says that, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift that you sent. And he describes it as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Paul says that the financial gifts to fund the ministry, they are ultimately unto the Lord and not to a local church, even though that is the immediate recipient, or not to a missionary, but ultimately it is unto the Lord and so it is an act of worship is what is the giving is ultimately an act of worship. 
And finally, I actually forgot to make a slide for this, but finally, uh, there is a wisdom principle, and this is just a, a practical matter of church finances, but there is a wisdom principle that states that pastors ought not to know the details of who gives what to a local church. Now, there's no biblical passage that makes that a rule or makes that a command. There's no biblical text that could be used to defend that practice. But it is considered to be good wisdom to insulate the pastor from that knowledge for a few reasons. And there are two that come immediately to mind. First, it allows pastors, like myself, to preach messages like the one I'm about to preach without making me feel like I'm preaching directly at an individual or at a person. Say, hey, you got to address this. You know, I'm not preaching to an individual because I don't know the details of who is giving what within a local church. And second, it frees the pastor from the pressure and temptation to give preferential treatment to those who give more rather than those to give little or to give none at all. And so if, if, if the reality is, if as a pastor, if I do not know who gives what, well, that isn't even a temptation, and it, it, is, it isn't even a pressure to follow through with that kind of temptation. So I, as the pastor of this church, I know very little about who gives what within the church. Early on, as we were getting established, as we were setting up our finances, I was involved in those processes. I'm less involved in that now, and I haven't known for some time who gives what to the church outside of my own family. And so I cover all of that. I cover those prerequisites to help us gain an understanding of what is a biblical church ethic for how churches get funds in the first place and how there's wise wisdom for how church, uh, a pastor can be insulated from some of the temptations that might come with handling finances within a local church. For the rest of our time today now, the rest of our text is addressing the issue of how churches use the funds that do come in when individuals within the church contribute to the work of the ministry, how the church as a whole uses those funds. How can we approach our finances as a church in a way that honors God? Again, we are in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to see these four principles from this text of how we can use these finances to honor God, whether that's supporting missionaries, whether that's the immediate use of the church funds within the local church, the day-to-day activities, how we can talk about these things. Biblical church finances that honors God, four principles for us today. Principle number one is that biblical church finances that honor God helps a genuine need. It helps a genuine need. Let's look at Philippians chapter 4. Well, I actually need to back up for a moment. I'm going to back up to Philippians chapter 2 because this provides a little bit of context for what is going on within the church of Philippi. Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, we read this. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. We have a situation where Paul, again, was a missionary. He was engaged in missionary activity. He was spreading the gospel of Christ, telling people about the good news of Jesus Christ. 
And he fell on difficult times. He had a physical and financial needs. And the Philippian church sought to meet that need. And so they, they collected an offering and they sent those funds with Epaphroditus to help meet the needs of the Apostle Paul. They sent a financial gift to help support him. And Epaphroditus was the carrier of that gift. Of course, back in those days, there was no USPS mail that they could stick a check in an envelope and mail it off and be sure that it was going to get there. There was no wire transfers. There's no direct deposits or anything like this. No, if you're going to send a financial gift, someone has to load up that gift and they have to carry it physically to the other person. Often those roads can be dangerous and treacherous. And in fact, Paphroditus fell ill along the way and his life was in jeopardy from the journey. But Paul says that he had a need. He says that they were a minister to his need. Paul had a genuine need and the Philippian church recognized that need and they sought to meet that need. Now go with me to chapter 4 where we continue to see Paul addressing this personal matter of how the Philippians supported him and recognized the help that the Philippians provided. We looked at this last week, but Philippians 4 verse 10 I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, and now at length that you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Last week we saw how the genuine concern that the Philippians had for Paul. They were concerned for him. They, they loved him. They, they saw that he had this, this need. They were concerned for him and his need. Yet at one point they didn't have an opportunity to meet that need. But when they had that opportunity... They followed through with that. They had a concern for Paul. They had a love for him. They knew he had that that need. And so they, when they became a, when the opportunity became available for them to meet that need, they followed through with doing so. And Paul rejoices at their support. He rejoices that they are partnering in the gospel in this way. Skip down now with me to verse 14. We covered verses 11 through 13 last week. But now look at verse 14 as Paul continues to talk about this in detail with the Philippians. He says in verse 14, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. After saying that, yes, I have, I have learned to be content in all things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, whether I, I have churches supporting me and whether I have a lot of money or whether I have no support, whether I have very little at all, whether I am hungry and in need. In any situation, in all circumstances, I've learned how to be content. Even so, he says in verse 14, despite all of that, despite my learning to be content, it still was kind of you. To share in my trouble. We have the concept of sharing there. It's a concept of, a, of partnership. They've entered into a partnership together with Paul and his ministry when they contributed to his need. The word for trouble speaks of suffering or oppression. Part of the reason that Paul is in need is because of this suffering, this, this trouble that he is experiencing. He has been routinely beaten. He is routinely flogged. He is routinely imprisoned because of his testimony in the gospel. And because of all these things, he's hauled off to prison. Any resources that he might have had on his person on any of these occasions would likely have been stripped from him and taken from him. And when he was left for dead, 
There's little doubt that he would, was left with nothing but if even the clothes on his own back, if that was not ripped and torn from him as well. And so indeed, the Philippian church came alongside to help. They, they partnered with him. They shared in his trouble. They shared in his genuine need in his time of suffering and oppression. You know, I think of the parable of the Good Samaritan that, that comes to mind where we have that story of, of a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was known to be a, a treacherous pass where there were highwaymen who would rob those who would come by, and that's exactly what happened. Robbers came and attacked him and le- beat him and left him for dead. And his fellow countrymen would see him, they would pass by on the other side, but the Samaritan saw him and helped him shared in his trouble. Think about some of the details of what that would require for that good Samaritan. He would have had to risk his own safety by stalling in a dangerous area. He had to get his own hands dirty by by picking up a man who was bloodied and beaten in the dirt. He had to surrender his own means of transportation by placing him on the donkey and then walking the rest of his way so that the hurt man could ride. He had to pay money out of his own pocket, out of his own expense, so that the innkeeper could care for that individual until he was sufficiently recovered. The man shared in that man's sufferings and in his need. Another analogy that comes to mind is the, the stock market. You know, when you invest in a stock, when that stock appreciates you gain part of that value, right? But if that stock falls, you also suffer the loss. So there is a sense in which, and this is kind of a, kind of a rude or, or crude analogy in, in many ways, but the company's gains are your gains, the company's losses are your losses. Well, when we use our resources to help others, when a church supports a missionary, for example, we are sharing in the joys of their success but also in the heartache of their trouble and the things that they endure as well. We become sharers in the trouble. Paul says, it was kind of you to share in my trouble. You have become a partner with me in this. And my joys are your joys, but my sorrow is your sorrow. The Philippians knew that that's what they were getting into when they signed up to help Paul, but they were willing to take that chance because they saw a genuine need and they sought to meet that need. And as we consider church finances, we should be considering things in a similar fashion. Will we take on this missionary or not? Will we allot funds for this project or not? Will we increase or decrease our budgets in this area or that area or not? How will we make these decisions? Well, we ought to be reflecting and considering where is the genuine need? Where can we direct our funds that will help a genuine need for individuals that we love and we care for? Is there a genuine need? So that is the first principle of church finances that honors God. The second is that it helps further the gospel. Look with me at verse 15. Paul writes, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. 
Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. As Paul acknowledges the help that the Philippians provided and how they were they're really exclusive ministry partners in the early days. When Paul was first sending out from Macedonia, they were, they were one of the few churches. In fact, he says, nobody else entered into partnership with me at that time except for them. And so they, had, they were exclusive ministry partners. And there's an, important, there's an important point here that we do not want to miss. They were his exclusive partners, but what were they partnering in? What were they joining in when they were his partners, when they supported him in this missionary endeavor? It's the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul says, from the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership, well, what does Paul mean when he talks about in the beginning of the gospel? Well, it could mean a couple of things. It could mean that this is the time that the Philippians first embraced the gospel for themselves, from the beginning of the gospel, from the beginning of their personal participation in belief in the gospel. Or it could also refer to when they first entered into gospel partnership with Paul when he left their region to attend to missionary activities elsewhere. I'm going to take us back to Philippians chapter 1 for a moment where Paul uses strikingly similar language. In fact, there, is, there are so many parallels here, I can't help but think that, there are, that this is an intentional re- repetition of a theme as Paul speaks of being partners in the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy. Why? Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. It seems to be that, that Paul, from the, from the very first days that the church embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ, when they first came to a place of belief in the gospel, that they were overjoyed with the good news that they had received, that they were delighted to support Paul in his ministry, that others too might hear and that they might believe and that they might follow Christ as well. They wanted others to know the good news that they had come to believe. They wanted others to have the same life that they had. So they eagerly entered into partnership with Paul. Why? To advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. To advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul is is highly praising them. You guys were on board from day one. You saw the value of this from day one. And And he thanks them not because he's dependent upon them, but because he desires to see the gospel continue to go forth because it brings him joy to know that others care about the gospel as much as he does. And so he rejoices and he uses the language of partnership. We're partners here, okay? We, we, we both have an investment in this mission, this, this hope, that this gospel, to see it continue to go forth. And this is how Paul consistently views others who give of their own resources to help the ministry move forward, to further the gospel. They are partners in ministry together. Notice he says, you are the only ones who engaged in giving and receiving. 
No church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. I used the analogy of, of an investment earlier in, in the stock market. Well, there is that idea of it present within Paul. There's financial terminology here in this text. There is a sense in which supporting a gospel ministry is an investment. We are investing in the furtherance of the gospel. And, and we don't get a financial return on that. Right? We don't invest $100 in the hopes that we'll get back $150 or $200 or anything like that. That's not how that investment works. But there is a blessing and there is a reward for those who are faithful in this as we will see in a few moments as we continue to examine this text. But there's that giving and that receiving that occurs. There's, there's a transaction that takes place and, and Paul isn't viewing this in a cold calculated mat- matter as if everything is just ROI. I'm just looking at return our investment. I'm just looking at, at profits and losses. He's not that cold and calculated with it. In fact, the terminology that he uses is very personal here. He says at the beginning of the verse, and you Philippians yourselves know. There are very, very few times when Paul addresses the audience by name. And this is one of those times. There's a tenderness here. There's a, there's a closeness, a relationship. That, that partnership isn't just isn't just financial. There's more to it than that. And the giving that is receiving, though there is not a financial return, there is a spiritual return on the investment. Finally, as it relates to this point, notice how in verse 16 it says that they gave once and again. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. This wasn't just a, a one-time deal. They, they, they had an offering, they had a gift, and they gave it, and they were done. No, they, there's the idea of regular, ongoing support here. It's, it wasn't just that one-time gift. They desired to be partners in the ministry, and they gave him gifts multiple times. It was an ongoing activity. They, they did it at one point, and they did it again. And, and the, it's, it's a little bit of an idiom in the Greek there where it speaks of an ongoing gift. When it comes to churches, local churches, and their use of their funds, there are many things that we could spend resources on, many different things that we could, could be engaged in. But one of the questions that we must ask is, will this further the gospel? Will supporting this missionary further the gospel? Our priority must be those who are serious about spreading the gospel of Christ. You know, there are many that go overseas and do different kinds of mercy ministries, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with humanitarian efforts where they're attending to people's physical needs. But what about the gospel? Right? We have to address that. That, that must be something that we are focused on. The proclamation of the gospel must be central to how we view supporting others and the ministry activities that we support with our finances. If an individual is not spreading the gospel of Christ, then they cannot rightly be called missionaries. Humanitarian work is good, and there is a place for that, but it is not missions. Thus, our local churches locally must, and by extension, those who, by grace, by God's grace, someday we will support missionaries from Pillar Fellowship. That's a goal, that's a desire that we have to see go forth into the world. One of the things when we consider 
that support is are these individuals who are going to proclaim the gospel of Christ. And even the, the funds that we use locally, we must consider how those funds advance the gospel. The third principle under consideration is that local church finances, ultimately it is, it is unto God and not man. Ultimately, it is unto God and not man. Pick it up with me in verse 17. Paul writes, Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payments and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul has made it clear that he is not dependent upon the Philippians. All right, in other letters to other churches, he makes it clear. Paul actually refuses ministry support in other contexts because he doesn't want there to be confusion about his dependency upon that church or he doesn't want there to be confusion about that church purchasing ministry from Paul. Right? This is not a, a just a rote financial transaction. He, he's very careful to avoid that perception that individuals would be purchasing the gospel or that, that he is dependent upon others. No, he would rather work with his hands, and we know that Paul was a tent maker. When he, did, when he was not supported as a missionary in these ways, he was a tent maker. He worked with his hands. He was bivocational, you could say making tents so that he could support himself in the work of the ministry. And Paul would rather do that than to have people think that he was enriching himself or that, that they were purchasing the ministry. Because the point is this. The point is this. The gift is not ultimately unto Paul. Yes, he is the immediate recipient. He's the immediate beneficiary of those gifts. But ultimately... The, it is an offering to the Lord. Paul says, I'm not seeking your money. That's what he says in verse 17. It's not that I seek the gift. I'm, I'm not after the money. Like, that's not what I'm seeking after. That's not the point. No, he says, I seek the fruit which abounds, which increases to your credits. That's what he's after. He's after the fruit that it comes that comes from his... And it's interesting, in verse 18, he says, I've received full payment and more. I'm well supplied. And just as an aside, I kind of wonder, Paul's definition of well supplied, I wonder if if we would have that same definition or if that would look a little bit different. I think oftentimes we think we need more than than what we need. And, And Paul's definition, when he says, you know, I, I've learned to be content both in plenty and in want. In both scenarios, he could say, I'm well supplied. I'm content with what God has given to me. That's just food for thought. But Paul says he is well supplied because of their gift. But notice how he describes their gift. He says it is a fragrant offering. It is a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Of course, this calls to mind the Old Testament sacrificial system where there would be incense that would be burned and it was to represent the prayers of God's people. There's the sacrifice, the burnt offerings that was supposed to uh, represent atonement for the people's sins. 
And when the people walked in obedience to the Lord in these matters and were faithful to observe His law and to to bring the offerings that His law commanded them to bring, when they followed through with that, the Old Testament text says that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, that it was acceptable to Him. He, He accepted their worship. You think of times when the, well, I'm not going to get off on that side, side tangent for now. It says it's a pleasing aroma. We are no longer under the sacrificial system, right? We, we don't slaughter animals and stuff. I'm kind of grateful for that right now, <laughs> uh, but that's not something that we do. We don't offer those offerings in that way. But the New Testament does liken each believer to a priest. We are, we are priests. We are a kingdom of priests, as the New Testament says. And so we all have this priesthood, and the Bible does talk about, the New Testament does talk about how we bring our sacrifices of our time, of our energy, of our praise, of our resources, and even of our very own bodies also, and we bring them before the Lord that He might use them as He would. And Scripture refers to these as our sacrifices unto the Lord. And here Paul says these are a fragrant aroma. It is pleasing. I don't know what smells you guys enjoy. Different people like different things. Uh, some people just like that, that new car smell, right? That's, a, that's something that people seek after. Sometimes. I just, just love that new car smell. Some people like the campfire, all right, just a, it's just a nice, cozy, warm feeling of the campfire, the smoky stuff. Yeah, I see some nods over here. Yeah, that's good, right? The, the campfire smell. Uh, some people like the smell of their favorite dish. Oh, and they smell that. It's cooking, and it smells so good. It's just, man, going to dig into that. Others, just kind of a little interesting thing I was thinking about this week. Some people have a favorite perfume or a favorite cologne that they like. And I've noticed that I have encountered a lot fewer people that wear perfume and cologne here than I did in Chicago. Just kind of a random side thing, but it's just kind of an interesting observation. It, I, w- I would encounter it all over the place in Chicago. It just, you, you walk by somebody in the store or on the street or something, and you just, you just smell it as you walk by, and that's not something I encounter as much since we moved out of Chicago. Again, has no value to anything, just kind of an interesting side observation. But there are these different smells that, that we like, and we, oh, you smell it, and you go, ah, oh, that that smells good. And people have their different you know, aroma diffusers and stuff that, that people just like and they enjoy. Well, Paul says that when we are concerned with helping others, when we give to further the gospel of Jesus Christ, that these sacrifices, they are an aroma unto the Lord. That it is a pleasing sacrifice unto him, that he sees that and he is pleased by it. Paul recognizes that it is a sacrifice. Giving of our resources is indeed a a sacrifice. When you give it, you don't have it anymore. You can't use those funds for other things that you might have purchased. So it is a sacrifice, but it is one that is pleasing to God. Even though our funds are directed towards missionaries, even though they're directed towards ministries and churches and organizations of such, ultimately, when we give to meet a need and we give to further the gospel, this is an act of worship. And ultimately, this is a giving unto the Lord and not merely unto man. 
Our obligation, therefore, is unto God and not to other individuals, not to people, even if they are the immediate recipients of those funds. Our obligation is not to them, but it's to God. And it's to see the ministry moved forward. And Paul stresses this point. This is why he stresses this point of, about how he doesn't speak as one being in need. Right? He doesn't speak as one. That's what he says back in, uh, in verse um, in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, he stresses that reality. He says, I'm not seeking the gift, he says down in verse 17. He stresses that because he's learned to be content with whatever resources God brings into his life. And ultimately, whoever gives is giving unto the Lord and not to Paul. And it's not about Paul. Right, this isn't about Paul. He's, Paul is the immediate recipient of the funds from the Philippians. But it's not Paul, about Paul. It's about the Lord. It's about God. Our act of giving is unto the Lord. It is an act of worship. So that's the third principle that we recognize about how local churches ought to view their finances. And finally, when we are observing these principles, when we are walking according to and following the example of the Philippians and following the example of Paul, we find that such an approach is blessed by God. Such an approach is blessed by God. Look at verse 19. Paul writes, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. We have this promise from God. A promise from God through Paul to those who are willing to give of their resources to help others in need and further the gospel. They have sought to meet a need and now God says they, that he will supply their need. There are other passages of scripture that, that have similar things to say. In fact, we have here uh, 2 Corinthians verse nine, uh, chapter 9 verses 5 through 9. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as, as a willing gift and not as extraction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. So we have this promise from God this promise of His provision for our need when we are seeking to meet others' needs we are, and we are seeking to see the gospel move forward. Now, we have to be careful about this because some have turned this into a prosperity formula, right? There's all the prosperity teachers on TV. There's all these false teachers out there who want nothing more than to tell you on the basis of these same texts, therefore, you should give me money. And they have enriched themselves off of these texts. Individuals who claim that God wants you healthy, He wants you wealthy, He wants you prosperous, and all you have to do to accomplish that is to give money to this ministry. And then God will bless you tenfold what you have given. 
Well, that certainly is not the point of these texts. In fact, in these texts, if you read carefully, God doesn't promise wealth and prosperity in these texts. But He does promise to care for His children and to meet their needs. And we must, we also must have to recognize and embrace the reality that perhaps our definition of what we need may not be God's definition of what we need. God says, I will supply all of your needs. That's verse 19 in Philippians 4. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ. Paul embraced that while sitting in prison. Our definition of need might be, you know what, I need to get out of jail. But Paul embraced that my God is supplying my needs even as I am sitting in jail. Paul says, I have learned in every circumstance how to be content. I've learned to be content in plenty and in want. Well, his God was meeting all of his needs when he had plenty and when he was in want. My God will supply all of your needs. That phrase, every need of yours, that word every, there's a stress upon the every aspect in that verse where it's, it's not just physical needs, but it's also spiritual needs as well. It's every need, whether that's physical or spiritual, God is going to meet those needs. This coincides back with, with what Paul says in verse 17 about seeking the fruit that increases to their credit. And I understand that to be fruit, uh, to be in a spiritual context rather than physical but this does not mean that God's not going to meet our physical needs at all. In fact, God has, Paul has been praising God for how God has provided his own need. And now he says that he will provide their needs as well. So though we may need to adjust our expectations, we do have this promise that when we observe these biblical principles of church finances when we seek to use the resources that God has given us to meet genuine needs and and to further the gospel of Christ, and we recognize them as an act of worship unto God and ultimately not unto merely mankind, then this approach, then this sacrifice on our part will be blessed by God. And He will supply every need of yours according to His riches. You think God has a lot of riches? Amen. He he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, as the book of Psalms writes for us. According to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. When we are stewarding our finances in accordance with godly wisdom, we do have this promise. I believe both as individuals and as a collective church that our God will tend to our needs. And so... In response to all of this, we have the words of praise to our God that Paul writes in verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. And that is how I want us to close our time together this morning, praising our God. So if you would stand with me, we're going to sing the doxology. Praise God from whom every blessings flow. We're going to sing that together. So stand with me now. And we'll close and sing this together, and then I'll close us in prayer. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise you and we do thank you. Thank you for this promise that you will meet every need of ours, whether that's physical, spiritual, or every need that we have, you will supply when we are faithful to steward our resources as you have called us to do. I thank you for the example of the Philippians, of their care, their concern for Paul, their desire to meet this need that Paul had. I thank you for their desire to see the gospel move forward, their partnership, their sharing in the gospel of Christ. pray that we would be faithful with our resources as well, viewing it not as merely unto an institution, not unto a, a local church, not unto individuals, missionaries, etc., but ultimately unto you, unto our God. This is an act of worship. And I pray that your Spirit would impart to our hearts that which you would have us to do. Thank you for the promise You've given us, and we praise you, and we thank you for that, that you will supply our needs. Now to you, our Father, be glory and praise forever and ever. I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.